Seven Ghosts by Chris Priestley. Chapter One. Jake heard the clapping and took his headphones off, letting them loop around his neck. He was standing in a group of maybe 20 other children in a large hall lined with mirrors and gold-framed paintings. It was all pretty fancy. Jake checked his phone and leaned around the boy in front of him to look at the woman speaking. She was standing at the bottom of a huge staircase with polished banisters. Good morning, everyone, she said. My name is Mrs Fox. Mrs Fox looked at Jake and seemed to sigh. Phones off, please, she told them. Nothing ruins the atmosphere of a ghost story more than a jokey ringtone. Jake muted his phone and put it in his pocket. I will be your guide today at Grimstone Hall, she added. Jake shuffled forward a bit to get a bit of a better view. Mrs Fox was a tall woman dressed in smart dark green clothes. She had pale skin and bright red lipstick and big glasses with black rims. Mrs Fox glanced at Jake a second time and gave him another funny kind of look. This made him frown because who was she to look at him like that? She didn't even know him. You have been chosen from hundreds of entrants, Mrs Fox went on as she looked at the other children. We felt your stories were the 20 best ghost stories sent to us from schools all across the country. The Grimstone Hall Trust have been holding this ghost story competition for several years now. Each year we invite children to submit their stories and our panel of authors choose the 20 they think are the best. This year, they chose your stories, so give yourself a round of applause. The group of children paused with embarrassment for a moment, then did as they were asked. Jake joined in and Mrs Fox clapped too. The children stopped clapping when Mrs Fox did. Now, on to the business of today, she said with a smile. As you know, Grimston Hall is thought to be one of the most haunted houses in, Brit in England. A ripple of excited murmuring went round the group. Jake smiled. But there's something more important than that, continued Mrs Fox. I think we are the only haunted house where all the ghosts are children. It's rather special, don't you think? Jake wasn't sure how special it was, but Mrs Fox didn't seem to want an answer to her question. I won't overload you with history, Mrs Fox went on. I will just say that there has been a manor house on this site since the Middle Ages. The house you're in today was mostly built at the end of the 17th century by the Gilbert family. A trust bought Grimstone Hall in 2002 with the help from the National Lottery funding. There had been another plan to make it into flats, but it never happened and the building began to crumble. It was vandalised and burgled. There was a small fire, but we managed to save the building in the nick of time. Mrs Fox paused to let the children take this in. Grimstone Hall became what it is now, a hugely successful hotel, conference centre and venue for writing festivals. It seems there is no shortage of people who want to spend the night in a haunted hotel. People even get married here. An annual horror festival began here in 2005 and has been going ever since. Then the Grimston Hall Trust decided to have a children's festival too. And as part of that, we hold our national ghost story competition. That is where you come in. Jake looked at the other children. They all looked just like he thought they would. Nice kids from nice homes. 
They looked like the kind of kids who couldn't wait to put their hand up in class. The kind of kids who didn't get into trouble. The kind of kids who probably didn't even know what trouble looked like. He was already wishing he hadn't let his English teacher persuade him to enter his story. I'm going to take you on a tour of the house and some of the grounds, said Mrs Fox. I'll introduce you to seven ghosts and their stories. The ghosts might even appear to us, you never know. Two of the younger children at the front gasped. I should add, said Mrs Fox, while many people have seen our ghosts over the years, you would still be very lucky to see one, or rather, unlucky. Mrs Fox smiled to herself. Afterwards, you will all go back to your schools and write your own story inspired by our day together. The writer of the story chosen as the best will get our lovely trophy and some very generous prizes. So soak up the atmosphere as we go around and see if you can come up with a really wonderful story to wow our judges. Any questions before we begin? A girl to Jake's right put her hand up. Jasmine, isn't it? said Mrs Fox, checking her list of names. Yes, miss, said Jasmine. What would you like to ask? Mrs Fox went on. Have you ever seen a ghost, miss? Jasmine asked. A strange look came over Mrs Fox's face and she paused before saying, Yes, I have. I've seen all the ghosts at at Grimstone Hall. The children gasped. Jake frowned. Really? It was easy for her just to say that she had seen a load of ghosts. But did she have proof? I will tell you about that later, continued Mrs Fox. If we have time. Come along, there's a lot to see and we are having a special lunch in the dining room at 12.30. The chef here is rather marvellous, but also a bit frightening. He will get very cross with me if we are late. Someone else's hand went up near to Jake. Miss, said the boy as he pointed to a mirror on the wall. Why is this mirror cracked? Jake turned to look where the boy was pointing. Jake hadn't spotted the round mirror that looked like a fisheye. It had thin, a thin diagonal crack running across it. Ah, said Mrs Fox. Well, Harry, I am glad you asked. That is a very, rather special mirror. It came from a man called Dr Cyrus. He was supposed to be a magician, but not the good kind. One of the owners at Grimstone Hall bought the mirror to an auction. He was very keen on objects and books with with strange pasts. But why is the mirror cracked, miss? said Jake. There was something about this mirror that nagged in Jake's mind. Like a memory he just couldn't grab hold of. It got broken some years ago, said Mrs Fox, before Grimstone Hall was open to the public. Isn't breaking a mirror supposed to be bad luck, miss? said Harry. Yes, said Mrs Fox, nodding. So they say. The mirror was believed to be cursed by Dr Cyrus. Some of the trustees of Grimstone Hall wanted to replace the glass, but most felt it might be better just to leave it be. Jake stared at the mirror. Why did it bother him so much? But Mrs Fox clapped her hands as he tried to think, and she started up the staircase. Everyone just watched her go. Well, come on, she said, looking back at them. Follow me. We'll begin with the roof. The children set off after Mrs Fox up the grand staircase. Jake followed them, but glanced backwards towards the mirror as he went. 
When they arrived at the very top of the stairs, the house seemed a bit less grand than it had at the bottom. There were no fancy lights or expensive looking furniture. The walls were plain and the floors were bare. This way, said Mrs Fox, and opened a door to a darker staircase. Don't be alarmed, this passage is a bit of a tight squeeze and rather steep, but it doesn't go on for very long. They started to climb. Jake was the last one to come out onto the roof. Whoa, said Jake as he stepped out. It is rather high up, said Mrs Fox. Apologies if you suffer from vertigo, but we did ask on the questionnaire you all filled in. Jake felt dizzy, but he couldn't complain. He hadn't filled in the questionnaire. He didn't see the point in it. Jake leaned back on, on, on one of the chimneys and tried to settle himself. He looked out over the trees and could just make out the top of his block of flats. The tree branches shivered in the breeze and seeing the move made Jake feel even dizzier. Something flapped past his head, something white and blue. What was that? Jake shook his head. He needed to calm down. He was just freaked out by being this high up, that was all. Let's begin, said Mrs Fox. The ghost I'm going to tell you about has been seen many times over the years by many people. In 1874, a workman fell from this roof after seeing him. Over a century later, a visiting American general swore he also saw the ghost during an air raid in 1943. But our story starts at the beginning in 1822. Seven Ghosts by Chris Priestley. Ghost One. Grimstone Hall had become a very grand house by the end of the 18th century. Many of the treasures that still fill the house to this very day were collected by Sir Thomas Gilbert in the 1970s as he travelled Europe buying art and antiques. It was Thomas's son, Sir Clarence, who was master of the house in 1822. After his wife died, Sir Clarence had decided it was about time that his son, Henry, learned a bit more about running a large estate like Grimstone Hall. Sir Clarence was a former soldier. He still had pieces of a French musket ball stuck in his right arm. Sir Clarence had seen terrible things on the battlefield and struggled with the memories of them. He would often fly into a rage. Henry loved his father and feared him in equal measure. One mild September morning in 1822, Henry and Sir Clarence were riding on their horses along the high lane that ran between the two rows of beech trees up on, Gilbert, on Gibbet Hill. Sir Clarence stopped his horse and Henry came alongside him as he pointed to the house at the bottom of the hill. The windows glinted in a burst of sunshine when the clouds above them parted for a moment. This will all be yours one day, Henry, said his father. Grimstone Hall and the land that goes with it. You'll have a wife and children and one day you will bring your own son up here and show him this view just as my father showed me. Henry nodded and smiled. His father reached over and patted Henry on the back and they headed off down the hill. They were about halfway down when they saw a small group of people in the road ahead. A boy flying a beautiful blue and white silk, silk kite was running alongside them. Henry grinned. There had been a picture of a boy flying a kite, just like this one, in a book his mother used to read him. It made Henry both happy and sad to see the silk kite in front of his eyes. Happy at the memory, but sad that his mother would never read to him again. These are travelling folk, said his father. There's a fair next weekend at Tunford. I dare say they are heading that way. They will sell things and move on. 
The group had come to a halt. They stood in silence watching Henry and his father. The boy had been told to stop flying his kite and stood clutching it to his chest. Oh, afternoon, Your Honour, a man near the front of the group said and took off his hat. All the best to you and your boy. All the luck in the world to you. I hope I won't find any of my grouse missing, said Henry's father. Poaching? Us? said the man, and his eyes grew wide with surprise. Not us, there's no poachers here. We don't want your birds. Uh, We'll be gone before you know it, no harm done. You have my word as an old soldier of the king, sir. It was then that Henry noticed the man's right arm at the end of his elbow. It ended at his elbow. You can stay till Friday, Henry's father told the group. You may collect any firewood you can find lying around, but then I want you gone. Agreed? Oh, agreed, sir, said the man, saluting. That kite, whispered Henry, turning to his father. I have some pocket money. Can we buy it? His father smiled and said, I say, how much for the kite? Not for sale, said the old woman beside the boy. Not for sale, said Henry's father with a dry laugh. Don't be ridiculous. Everything is for sale. Just a matter of price. I'll give you a shilling for it, which is a hundred times more than it's worth. Not for sale, sir, said the old woman again. What does the boy say, said Henry's father. Wouldn't you like a nice shiny shilling lad? He don't talk, said the old woman. Can't talk, never has. Oh, said Henry's father. Well, he can nod, I suppose. The boy did not move except to clutch his kite tighter. Henry's father snorted and pulled his horse away. Make sure you're gone by Friday, he said. Come along, Henry. Henry scowled at the boy, then followed his father. Why wouldn't the boy sell his kite? These people were poor and they needed the money. It was stupid. It's not fair, said Henry as they rode towards the house. It is his kite said his father. I dare say that boy won't have many things of his own, unlike you. When they got back to the house, Henry's father told his gamekeeper, Farrow, about the people they'd met. He told Farrow to keep an eye on them and to make sure they were gone by Friday. He also reminded Farrow that friends were coming to shoot grouse on Saturday. Henry could not get the kite out of his mind or the feeling of irritation he had with the boy, the old woman and his own father. He felt the three of them were clubbed together to make sure he did not get the kite. Henry was still sulking when Farrow came running in from the courtyard that Saturday. Fetch the master, Farrow shouted. Someone went to find Henry's father. What's the matter, man? he asked when he arrived. There's been an accident, said Farrow. It's the shooting party up on Gibbet Hill. One of them has... Farrow didn't finish his sentence. Best that you come, sir. Henry's father followed Farrow, and Henry followed them both across the moor. They stopped by a small group of trees near where Henry and his father had met the old woman and the boy with the kite. Henry could see the boy now lying on his back in the heather. With the front of his shirt and his face, they were all red with blood. He just ran out from behind the tree, said a man nearby, his gun in his hand. Right into my line of fire! Put something over the boy, Farrow, said Henry's father. See if you can find the boy's people. Farrow told some men to go and look for them. Is he? Henry began to ask, staring towards the boy's crumpled body. His father nodded. I'm afraid so, my boy. It's a terrible business. Henry saw the kite lying on the ground near the boy near the body. 
His father followed his gaze. Well, I'll say one thing for you, Henry, said his father. When you are determined to have something, you don't give in. Go on, you may as well have the kite. The boy is no need of it now, I suppose. Henry hesitated for a moment, then headed towards the kite. Farrow's disapproving look gave Henry a sudden pang of guilt. But Henry wanted the kite. He picked it up and walked away. But after a few steps, the kite snagged. Henry turned round and saw the string of the kite leading back to the dead boy. He was still clutching it in his hand. Henry gave it a sharp tug and freed the string, but he felt a cold chill run over him as he walked away and he did not look back. Henry saw Farrow walking across the courtyard the following day. Will there be a funeral? Henry asked him. A funeral, Master Henry, said Farrow without turning round. For that boy, the one who, you know... The boy who was shot, Master Henry, said Farrow. The boy whose kite you now have. Henry didn't like Farrow's tone of voice. No, Master Henry, Farrow continued. There won't be a funeral. Not the kind you're thinking of anyway. Why, said Henry. They are travelling folk, said Farrow. They have their own ways. They took the boy's body and they will deal with him in their own way. Now, if you'll excuse me, Master Henry, I have some work I must attend to. Henry flew the kite as often as he could. He sometimes saw Farrow looking at him when he did, and Henry didn't like it, but it just made him fly the kite even higher. Why should he care what Farrow thought? Henry often had the feeling he was being watched, even when Farrow wasn't about. He slept with the kite beside him on the floor with the string around his hand. One night he awoke and felt the string being tugged, but when Henry looked around, there was no one there, or so he hoped. Henry sometimes dreamed of the mute boy walking across the lawn. He'd be looking up at Henry's room, his arms outstretched, begging for the return of his kite. But it was Henry's kite now. Then one day, while Henry was outside flying the kite, a sudden gust of wind yanked it out of Henry's hand. To his horror, it sailed away and got snagged on one of the pinnacles up on the roof. Farrow! cried Henry. My kite! Oh dear, said Farrow. That's a shame, Master Henry. Farrow didn't sound as if he thought it was a shame at all, and he laughed when Henry asked him to climb up and get it. Henry complained to his father, but he just laughed as well. Henry did not see what was funny. Tears started to fill his eyes. But what about my kite, father? I want my kite back. It's not... Oh, for goodness sake, Henry, snapped his father. Do stop going on about that silly kite. You are too old for this nonsense. Henry refused to eat his supper and was sent back to bed. Cook sneaked a sandwich up to Henry, but he wouldn't even eat that. He didn't sleep very well and woke early. As soon as he was dressed, Henry went out onto the lawn to see if his kite was there. He hoped that it come loose in the night and fluttered to the ground somewhere. A huge grin appeared on Henry's face as he saw the kite. It was no longer snagged to the roof, but up in the air, fluttering about. Henry followed the string of the kite, which seemed to lead to a place on the parapet of the roof. He knew there was a small door near there. Henry rushed back inside the house and crept up the small stairs that led to the roof. He had been banned from coming here years ago, but he was older now. Besides, no one would know, as long as he was quiet. The sun had risen further, and there was a cold light now as Henry stepped out into a confusing collection of chimneys and pinnacles. Then he saw the kite. 
Henry grinned and moved forward. Henry came round one of the chimney stacks and saw a boy standing with his back to him. The kite danced in the air above the boy, flickering in the dawn light. Hello, said Henry. You there? The boy turned. Henry recognised him. Despite the damage done to his face and chest by the shot, Henry staggered backwards, his mind struggling to cope with what he was seeing, and screamed. Henry never really recovered from the shock of seeing the ghost of the boy on the roof. He said he continued to see the boy flying his silk kite from the rooftop. Henry could hear his feet scampering among the chimneys. Sometimes the boy even crept into his room at night. Henry was sure of it. In the end, Henry could not be calmed and was taken to stay with relatives far away. He never returned. It made Henry's father furious at first. Then it made him sad and then it broke his spirit. Henry's father had dreamed of handing the estate on to his son and now he could see that would never be. Some years later, he sold Grimstone Hall to Sir Thomas Warner, a man who had made his fortune in, of all things, silk. Seven Ghosts by Chris Priestley. Ghost One, Second Half. Poor Henry, said Jasmine. What about the boy whose kite Henry pinched, said Jake. He got shot and died, remember? Jasmine didn't reply. It's a sad story, said Mrs Fox. So many ghost stories have a bit of sadness about them. Sadness and cruelty. Maybe think about that when you write your own stories. Mrs Fox looked straight at Jake and he had to glance away. So, she said, shall we move along to our next ghost? The children followed Mrs Fox back inside the house and downstairs to the second landing. They turned onto a long dark corridor. Mrs Fox stopped outside a door, paused and then opened it. The children squinted at the bright light bursting from the room. Mrs Fox went in, her figure black against the brightness, and the children followed. As Jake was going in, he turned to look back down the corridor and he thought he saw a girl. A pale, skinny girl. Just for a second. She was wearing an old-fashioned long dress that reached right to the floor with an apron tied around it. Jake almost called out to tell the others, but then she was gone. He smiled. The people at Grimstone Hall must think kids were stupid or something. If they wanted them to think this girl was a ghost, they needed to make her look like a ghost. She should float about on a wire or glow or something. Besides, Jake was the only one who saw her, so their little show had been a waste of time. Jake squeezed into the room to stand at the edge of the group. They were in a bedroom, much bigger than his bedroom at home, and a hell of a lot tidier. Instead of posters on the walls, there were small paintings. One was of a vase of flowers, one a horse in a meadow, another some mountains and a lake. All very sweet, if you like that sort of thing. We call this room the sick room, Mrs Fox said. The sick room, said a girl at the front. It's just the bedroom, really, said Mrs Fox. Any room could become a sick room in a Victorian house. People with money didn't go to hospitals. They were for poor people. If you had money, you got looked after at home. Maybe even by a professional nurse. This room was once occupied by someone who needed looking after because they were old and not very well. She was called Lady Agnes, but the story is really about her young servant girl, Maisie. Jake looked back at the door, thinking about the girl he had just seen in the hallway outside. 
This particular ghost was seen just last week by a young man staying here, Mrs Fox went on. He was returning to his room late at night, and the ghost ran past him on the stairs. The young man followed her and saw that she was hurrying to this room. When he opened the door, the room was empty. He was delighted, of course. He was one of the many people who 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 come here in the hope of seeing something just like that. One of the girls near Jake rolled her eyes at the weirdness of this idea and he smiled. What sort of person goes looking for ghosts? The story of our second ghost takes place in winter, said Mrs Fox. It was the beginning of 1872. Queen Victoria had been on the throne for almost 35 years and the Warner family, who had owned Grimstone Hall for even longer... Seven Ghosts by Chris Priestley Ghost 2 It was a cold and damp February day in 1872, and Maisie and the rest of the servants had gathered on the steps of Grimstone Hall. They were waiting to greet Sir Michael Warner as he returned home from his honeymoon. None of the staff had met Sir Michael's bride, but they were glad that their master was finally settling down. Sir Michael's father had died a year before and they had all been worried that Grimstone Hall might be closed down for good. So Michael's carriage rumbled to a halt, and the horses were held and the doors opened. He stepped out, followed by his wife. Then, to everyone's surprise, an older lady also appeared. She turned out to be Sir Michael's elderly mother-in-law, Lady Agnes. Lady Agnes was dressed all in black, and her slow, jerky movements reminded Maisie of an insect. She seemed very frail and needed to be helped up the steps of the house. As Lady Agnes passed Maisie, she shot out a thin hand and grabbed the poor girl's arm, making her jump. "'You're a pretty little thing, aren't you?' said Lady Agnes as she peered at Maisie from behind her black veil. Maisie wanted to pull her arm away. The old lady scared her. "'Healthy too,' said Lady Agnes, raising her bony hand to Maisie's face. "'Look at those rosy cheeks!' "'Thank you, madam,' said Maisie nervously. Lady Agnes smiled and let go of Maisie's arm. She moved up the steps and into the house, coughing and wheezing. Maisie breathed a huge sigh of relief, and Mrs Miller, the housekeeper, patted her on the back. "'Come on, rosy cheeks,' Mrs Miller said. "'Work to be done, my girl.' Some of the servants at Grimstone Hall, who weren't local, got homesick, but not Maisie. The workhouse was the only home she had known before Grimstone Hall. Anything was better than the workhouse, where they'd been treated worse than animals, worked to the bone for barely enough food to live on, and beaten if they complained about it. Mrs Miller was kind and fair, and Maisie was a good worker. She liked to be busy, so she was glad to see the rooms were being used again now Sir Michael was home. It was warmer too, now there was a fire in every hearth. Maisie was cleaning a fireplace when Mrs Miller called her name. It made Maisie jump up and bang her head on the mantelpiece. "'What is it, Mrs Miller?' said Maisie, rubbing her head. It, "'It's Lady Agnes,' said Mrs Miller. "'She's asking for you.' "'Me?' said Maisie. "'You must have made an impression with those rosy cheeks of yours,' said Mrs Miller. Maisie grinned at the joke. "'What does Lady Agnes want?' she asked. "'Well, I suppose you'd better run along and find out,' said Mrs Miller. "'Go on, off you go. I'll finish that fireplace.' Maisie dusted her hands on her apron and headed upstairs to Lady, Ag Lady Agnes's room. 
She knocked on the door and a shout from the other side made her jump. Come in, come in. The voice was so harsh, Maisie thought, but she opened the door and let herself in. Lady Agnes was in bed over by the window and the shutters were closed. It took Maisie a, three, a few moments to get to the, used to the dark. Well, don't just stand there, said Lady Agnes. Let's have a proper look at you. Maisie walked over towards the bed. Now then, said Lady Agnes, it's Maisie, isn't it? Yes, ma'am, said Maisie. Well, Maisie, you are to look after me, Lady Agnes told her. What do you say to that? Maisie didn't know what to say. Lady Agnes chuckled. You don't seem very pleased, said Lady Agnes. Sorry, madam, said Maisie. I, I just, it, that, I just don't, I'm, mm. Lady Agnes raised her, her hand and frowned. Shh. You are to come when I call. Do you understand? Yes, madam, said Maisie. Just you, said Lady Agnes. Only you. Come whenever I call. Do you understand? She reached out and grabbed Maisie's hand. Yes, madam, said Maisie. Good, said Lady Agnes after a moment. She let go of Maisie and lay back against her pillows. Can you reach the bell pull, madam? said Maisie. I can move the bed a bit. No, no, said Lady Agnes. I have my own bell. Madam, said Maisie. Lady Agnes reached under the covers and brought out a small brass bell. Then she motioned for Maisie to come closer. Pretty, isn't it? said Lady Agnes. Maisie wasn't at all sure it was pretty. It was an odd thing. It was brass and in the shape of a servant girl with a bonnet and an apron. The body was the handle and the dress was the bell. Looks a bit like you, doesn't it? said Lady Agnes. She smiled and a shiver ran over Maisie. When I ring this bell, you are to come at once, said Lady Agnes. Do you understand? Yes, madam. At once, repeated Lady Agnes. Whatever else you're doing. Yes, madam, said Maisie. Well, don't just stand there, said Lady Agnes. Get on about your work, you silly girl. Maisie bowed and scurried away. She waited until she reached the bottom of the stairs and then let out a sob, clamping her hand over her mouth to muffle the sobs that followed. Maisie, said a voice behind her. She turned to find Mrs Miller standing in the doorway. I can remember when I was your age, said Mrs Miller, away from home, away from parents. My parents are dead, Mrs Miller, said Maisie. I know, my dear, she replied. I'm sorry, but we're your family now. We'll look after you. Lady Agnes is an old woman. She's ill. Maybe she wants for a bit of kindness. There was the sound of a bell and Maisie looked up at the stairs. Well, off you go, girl, said Mrs Miller. Maisie nodded and set off up the stairs. She knocked at Lady Agnes's door. Come in, called Lady Agnes. Maisie opened the door and stood with her hands clasped behind her. What took you so long, said Lady Agnes. I came as fast as I could, madam. Do not answer back, said Lady Agnes. Sorry, madam. Get me some tea, said Lady Agnes. Yes, madam. Lady Agnes worked and worked Maisie. She rang her bell all hours of the day. She rang it during the night as well, but no one apart from Maisie was disturbed by it. The sound of the bell seemed to carry through the walls and doors, seeking only Maisie out. The rest of the house slept on, but Maisie was forced to leap out of her bed and scurry away in the darkness to see what Lady Agnes wanted. Maisie became paler and paler. Whether it was down to tiredness or some chill court while running about the halls at night, no one could say. 
Her eyes started to lose all their previous sparkle. She became so ill that she was forced to take to her bed for a couple of days, but as soon as, as, soon as Maisie could stand, Lady Agnes was ringing her bell again and Maisie was set to work once more. Mrs Miller brought the matter up with Sir Michael, but he didn't want to listen and handed it over to his wife. She sharply reminded Mrs Miller of her place and that her mother was ill and might die any day, so she should show some compassion. Maisie struggled on. Mrs Miller complained again and was sacked. The servants gathered tearfully on the steps of the house to watch Mrs Miller leave. They were so devastated. Mrs Miller was like a mother to the girls who worked there and none more so than Maisie. She was a shadow of the girl she had been before Lady Agnes had arrived. On the other hand, Lady Agnes grew stronger and stronger each day. Not that it stopped her ringing the bell. It was as if she wanted to squeeze every last drop of life out of Maisie. The word witch was whispered on the servants' stairs and in the kitchen. Maisie collapsed at the bottom of the stairs one day. By the time she was found, the poor girl was dead. Mr Norris, the butler, said later that picking up Maisie was like picking up a handful of leaves. She was so liked. Mr Norris tried to explain to Sir Michael some of the bad feeling about what had happened to Maisie, but he wouldn't listen. Sir Michael grew angry when Mr Norris would not let the subject go. It was clear to Mr Norris that he would end up being sacked like Mrs Miller if he carried on, so the matter was dropped. Maisie was buried in the local churchyard. Sir Michael did pay for a headstone at least. Lady Agnes was now well enough to take a short walk in the garden with her daughter when the weather allowed it. She would also join the others for dinner and play cards on rare occasions there were guests. The servants were all wary of Lady Agnes, but no more was seen of her bell, and many of the servants had left after Mrs Miller was sacked. A new factory had opened in the local town and the pay there was better. The new staff brought into Grimestone Hall at Grimstone Hall did not believe those who swore they had seen Maisie work to death. Betty, one of the new maids, was putting the clothes away in Lady Agnes's chest of drawers when she saw the bell. She took it out and shook it, smiling at the loudness of its ringing. No! shouted Lady Agnes, coming back into the room, snatching it from Betty. You stupid girl! Betty scurried away and Lady Agnes stood by the window. She was about to go back downstairs when something caught her eye in the twilight outside. Standing on the lawn, looking up at the window, was Maisie. No, said Lady Agnes, closing her eyes and shaking her head. No, no, no. When Lady Agnes opened her eyes and looked back at the lawn, it was empty. She smiled to herself and wrapped the bell in linen, making sure to stuff the linen inside the bell so that it would be completely muffled. Then she put the bell in a wooden box next to her bed, locked it and put the key in the pocket of her dress. Lady Agnes fell into a deep sleep, but she was woken by the sound of a bell. At first, she thought the church bells were ringing a long way off. She remembered how she used to lie in bed when she was a girl and hear the bells ringing in the village down the lane. But the tone of the ringing changed. It became more harsh. It couldn't be. It sounded like the bell she had bought from the old tinker woman. The bell in the shape of a servant girl. The bell the tinker had promised would make her well again. 
the bell that she had rung for that silly girl. The one who... Yes, madam, said a familiar voice. Lady Agnes tried to adjust her eyes to the gloom. Who's there? Lady Agnes demanded. Show yourself. Yes, madam, said Maisie, her voice sounding dry and distant. I came as fast as I could. Maisie walked slowly forward, out of the shadows. Her face and clothes were flecked with graveyard soil and Lady Agnes screamed and woke the whole household. It took some time for anyone to get any sense out of Lady Agnes and the story she told between gasps and sobs made no sense at all. She raved about a bell and the poor servant girl who had recently died. Two days later, Lady Agnes breathed her last breath. Her daughter thought it wise to bury the strange bell with Lady Agnes. Seven Ghosts by Chris Priestley Ghost 2, Part 2 Mrs Fox waited for the story to sink in as the children stared at the empty bed. Jake thought about nasty old Lady Agnes and her bell. The girl he had seen in the corridor was clearly meant to be poor Maisie. That was pretty cool, actually. Kind of creepy in a way, just having her wander around like that and not making a big deal of it. Jake wondered if there were going to be any more of these shows. Maybe that was what the guy who was staying here saw the other night. Maybe the hotel hired a whole team of these ghosts just to please the weirdos who came here for a glimpse of something. Come on, said Mrs Fox with a clap of her hands. I think we all need a breath of fresh air. Jake followed everyone out of the sick room. The group headed downstairs after Mrs Fox and then past the kitchens and right out of the house. Please keep to the paths, said Mrs Fox without turning round. They went down a brick path via a gate in a high wall, then down some worn and cracked stone steps. They came to a halt in front of a strange, small, domed building set into the lawn they'd just walked past. The building was almost completely overgrown by ivy and stood in the shade of a of a group of trees. The heavy wooden doors were locked with a padlock. It felt cold and damp out. The girl in front of Jake hugged herself and rubbed her arms. Does anyone know what this is? asked Mrs Fox, pointing to the building. A boy put his hand up and said, is it an igloo, miss? There was a ripple of giggles from the other children and the boy blushed. No, said Mrs Fox, but good for you for having a go. It just so happens you're nearer to the truth than you might think. This is an ice house, not a building made of ice, but a building to store ice. Back in the old days before electricity or fridges, they had to store ice in cold places such as this. They would bring the ice here and shut it away and it would last for months. Ice for drinks made without any electricity at all. Amazing when you think about it. A girl next to Jake wrinkled her nose. But ice from a revolting old cave, she said. Jake smiled. A revolting old cave? Who talks like that? He wondered what kind of school this girl went to. Not one like his, that was for sure. Yes, said Mrs Fox. You have a point. Anyway, this ice house is the chilly setting for the story of our next ghost. A ghost 
called The Frozen Boy. Seven Ghosts by Chris Priestley. Ghost 3. It was December 1893 and Queen Victoria was still on the throne, but Grimstone Hall was now owned by the Harrison family. Sir Herbert Harrison was a wealthy man, having made his money in steel. He was an important advisor to the government. The Prime Minister, Mr Gladstone, had come to dinner at Grimstone Hall twice. Sir Herbert was always keen to take any chance to look like a man of the people, so he opened the gates of Grimstone Hall to the local villagers every Christmas. A lot of the servants had family in the village, and for the few hours that they visited, the house had a warm glow. It was a contrast to the normally rather chilly atmosphere of the place. Sir Herbert was a busy man and found family life a rather bothersome distraction. But Rupert couldn't stand his father's fake smile and the fake voice he used when talking to the villagers. It was all fake, all of it. Rupert hated the invasion of children from the village into his home. His father expected Rupert to entertain them. But what was he supposed to do? Rupert wasn't going to pretend to like these children and they weren't going to pretend to like him. Rupert watched them running about, stuffing their faces with food, yet his father always told him that he ate too much and made too much noise when he was eating. In fact, the only times Rupert father, Rupert's father seemed to notice Rupert were when he was doing something wrong or something his father felt was wrong. Rupert's mother was just as bad. She sang the carols far too loudly. It was embarrassing. Rupert's mother never sang otherwise, ever. And for good reason. He could see the servants trying not to laugh at her. Rupert could stand no more and went outside. The sound of the carols seeped through from the dining hall as Rupert stomped across the garden. He couldn't wait to get back to, st to school. The snow that Rupert had hoped for had never arrived. Christmas wasn't the same without snow and the heavy snowball fights and the sledging on the hill above the house. But this year, it wasn't even that cold. The only ice Rupert had seen was in the bucket one of the servants was now carrying back from the ice house. Rupert noticed that some of the village children had gathered together and were playing hide and seek. He felt suddenly guilty that he hadn't made more of an effort with them. It might be fun to play hide and seek in the grounds, especially at night. But Rupert knew he could not join in. They would never let him. That he might hide all night and no one would ever come to find him. Rupert noticed that the servant had left the door of the ice house open. His father would be furious at the servant when Rupert told him. Just as he was thinking this, one of the village boys ducked into the ice house to hide. Rupert smiled. This boy clearly had no idea what the ice house was or he would never had gone in there. The, the thought of closing the door came to Rupert almost randomly. He strode over to the ice house and shoved the heavy door shut. The boy inside called out, but the door was so thick and heavy that it was hard for Rupert to hear him, even when he was standing next to it. Rupert walked away chuckling and went back inside the house. He picked up a mince pie and bit into it as he watched his mother sing Hark the Herald's Angels Sing at the top of her voice. No one found the boy until much later, when the boy's mother came to the house saying he hadn't arrived home. Sir Herbert was not at all pleased to be dealing with this at nearly midnight, but sent men out to search the house and the grounds. 
they found the boy in the ice house, cold and dead. Rupert had been in bed asleep, but was woken by the commotion. He came down the stairs as they brought the boy into the house. The boy's mother screamed out and collapsed to the floor. Rupert saw the boy's face. It was pale, like marble, almost blue. Go back to bed, Rupert, said his mother. But what's happening? Rupert asked. There's been a frightful accident, she replied. Go back to bed and we'll talk about it tomorrow. But Rupert couldn't sleep. Shouldn't he say something? Perhaps he should go downstairs right that minute and explain. He had forgotten all about the boy in the ice house. He had assumed the boy's friends would find him and free him. Yet, what good would it be to tell anyone? It wasn't as if Rupert had meant the boy to die. It's not as if he had locked him in. The door was heavy. It must have jammed. But that was hardly Rupert's fault, was it? Rupert's mother was too upset to come down to breakfast the following morning. Sir Herbert was clearly furious at the effect this might have on his popularity when the story got into the papers. It was a disaster. Rupert was mostly ignored as usual. No one seemed to suspect he was involved. He did have the odd pang of guilt, but reminded himself again that he really was not to blame. Then the servant Rupert had seen collecting ice came forward and admitted to Sir Herbert that he could not be entirely sure he had closed the door of the ice house. He was dismissed immediately and he was told to leave the estate at once. It seemed as if that was that. All Rupert had to do was to get through the next few days and then he'd be back at school with his friends. It wasn't long now. Perhaps it would snow while he was at school. That would be more fun anyway. Rupert walked across the lawn thinking about what fun it would be to have a huge snowball fight in the school grounds. He was in such a world of his own that he did not notice the boy at first. But when Rupert looked up, he stopped, horrified, as he saw the boy from the ice house walking towards him in the moonlight. It was impossible, yet there he was. The ground the boy stepped on froze instantly and sent sparkles of frost across the grass towards Rupert's feet. The boy was a terrible sight. His skin was almost glowing with a pale blue tinge to it. There was frost around his lips and around his eyes and they twinkled in the twilight. No, cried Rupert, it can't be, it can't be. Rupert turned to run, but the damp grass was now frost beneath his feet and he slipped and fell. Before he had time to scrabble to his feet, the boy was standing over Rupert, reaching out his cold blue hand. They found Rupert curled up on the damp grass. The servants who came when they heard him crying were puzzled by the frost on the grass. The day had been so mild and there was no sign of frost elsewhere. Rupert was shivering, cold to the touch. The servants carried him inside and built a fire, but it seemed that no amount of heat would warm him. Rupert's mother took him to stay with friends in the south of France, but Rupert never felt warm again for as long as he lived, and he refused to return to Grimstone Hall. The ice house was locked and has never been open since. Seven Ghosts by Chris Priestley Ghost 3, Part 2 The boy next to Jake shivered. 
It did seem to have got colder by a few degrees. They all looked at the padlocked door to the ice house. Mrs Fox rubbed her hands together. We don't know the name of the frozen boy, said Mrs Fox, but he has been seen many times over the years. Shall we press on? If you'll just walk with me over to the terrace. When they moved away from the ice house, Jake noticed that the boy standing next to him did not move. He turned to tell the boy to come on, but he was gone. Jake stood there for a moment, staring at where the boy should have been, then shook his head and went to catch up with the others. The children followed Mrs Fox onto the terrace. It ran alongside the house and faced the lakes and woods and a small hill with what looked like the ruin of a castle on top. Mrs Fox stopped by a sundial and the children gathered around. Jake put his hand up. Mrs Fox smiled at him. Is that a castle, miss? Jake asked. The tower you see on the hill over there isn't the leftover ruins of a castle, she said. It isn't really even a ruin. A ruin is something that was once a building but has partly been destroyed. The tower was built that way. What do you mean? Jake asked. The grounds of Grimstone Hall were landscaped in the 18th century. It was the fashion then to rebuild fake ruins and towers to make the view look more like a painting. They are sometimes called follies or eye-catchers because they were there to catch your eye, you see, to be a point of interest in the landscape. But there's no need for us to plod our way over there. It looks like it might rain. Let's go inside where it's a bit warmer and I'll tell you about the next ghost. Once inside, Mrs Fox turned her back to the children and looked out of the window towards the tower. This ghost is one that witnesses seem to be particularly alarmed by, said Mrs Fox. This might be because he is always seen in daylight among the trees over by the lake when people are taking an otherwise peaceful stroll. It is scary to glimpse something in the darkness and shadows, but worse to see something out in the open as clear as day and know that there can be no mistake. Jake nodded. She had a point. The story of this ghost, Mrs Fox went on, brings us into the 20th century. Seven Ghosts by Chris Priestley, Ghost 4. The Harrison family sold Grimstone Hall to an American millionaire but he never lived in the house. Instead, just a small band of servants looked after it. Most of the rooms were closed down, the windows shuttered and the furniture hidden under dust sheets. By the summer of 1911, Grimstone Hall had been sold again. It became the family home of Sir Andrew Carter, his wife, Lady Emma, and their eight-year-old son, William. William had been a sickly boy and almost died when he was very young. He was small for his age and very slight. Lady Emma had been told she might not have any more children and became very protective of William. Sir Andrew found this very irritating. He felt that William needed to be encouraged to get out and play, not sit indoors all day reading and drawing pictures. Lady Emma refused to send her son away to school. A private tutor was hired, but the tutor seemed as overprotective of William as his wife. All Sir Andrew heard about was how sensitive William was, how imaginative. Sir Andrew blamed this sensitivity on his wife. She was forever claiming to see spirits in the house and grounds, a boy with a kite on the roof, 
a servant girl who ran around the house at night. Sir Andrew found this such nonsense very tiring. Boys were not meant to be imaginative as far as Sir Andrew was concerned, certainly not sensitive. Sir Andrew was determined that no son of his was going to end up as a poet or a painter or some such. An idea came to him when he saw one of his gardeners playing with his own son. He asked the gardener if his boy might like to earn some money by playing with William. The deal was struck and William had a new playmate. His name was Martin. Martin was under strict instructions from Sir Andrew not to do anything that might hurt William. But at the same time, Sir Andrew explained that he expected William to get a bit dirty and the odd scratch or bruise was all part of growing up. Martin's father had taken Martin aside and told him the opposite, that if William should come back with a mark on him, Martin would be in trouble. Martin had seen William from afar and thought he was a strange elfin thing. He and some of the village boys laughed at William sometimes after church when no one was looking. William had never seemed to notice. He was always in a world of his own. Martin was happy to take Sir Andrew's money, but realised very fast there was no way to get William to act like a normal boy. He could hardly even get him to run. Martin knew Sir Andrew wanted William climbing trees and so on, but what if he fell? It would be Martin's fault and he'd get a thrashing. So Martin and William would trail around the grounds, William desperate to get back to his books, and Martin bored stiff. He had never met anyone like William. Sometimes William would come to a halt and stare ahead. Martin would ask him what the matter was, and William would tell him about a picture he was thinking of drawing or a story he had read. Eventually, Sir Andrew saw that there had been no great transformation in William and told Martin his services would no longer be needed. Martin would miss the money, but he would not miss the chore of being with William. Go and tell your father to meet me at the eye catcher, Sir Andrew told Martin, walking away. William hadn't really been listening, but suddenly took an interest when he heard this word that he did not recognise. He turned to Martin and asked, What did Papa say? He wants me to fetch my father, said Martin. But I heard him say eye catcher, said William, frowning. What's that? Martin shook his head and replied, How have you lived here all this time and never heard about the eye catcher before? William shrugged. I bet I know lots more things than you, he said. Is that right, Master William? said Martin. Yes, said William. I heard Father tell my mother that you might not know anything about mathematics or history or poetry, but at least you could throw a ball and climb a tree. Martin scowled. It was de he decided it was time to have some fun at William's expense. He remembered an old story his uncle had tried to frighten him with when he was small. Perhaps I shouldn't tell you about the eye catcher, said Martin. Won't want to scare you. I'm not scared, said William. Tell me. Are you sure, Master William, said Martin. Yes, I insist, said William. Martin smiled to himself. You insist, do you, he thought. Martin turned to face William. Well, Master William, Martin said, that tower over there's haunted. William stared at Martin, then out of the window towards the tower. Martin had to stop himself from laughing. You mean there's a ghost in there, said William nervously. Truly? 
more of a demon, really, Master William, said Martin, enjoying himself. They call it an eye-catcher because it catches the eyes of anyone who looks at it. They say if you see this demon, it's the last thing you'll ever see. William had already begun to wish he had not insisted on hearing the story. But, but how does it catch your eyes? William asked, his voice wobbling with the effort of trying not to sound frightened. I'm not sure it's the kind of thing for your young ears, Master William, said Martin. He shook his head and started to walk away. Tell me! cried William. You have to, or I shall tell father. I shall tell him you pinched me. Martin turned round, slowly. Very well, Master William, he said. As you insist, I can't refuse. They say that the eye-catcher is these long fingernails. Martin held his hands up like claws and left William to imagine the long fingernails they might be tipped with. Martin made a scratching motion in the air. William took a step back and looked towards the tower. But why would my father allow such a creature to live here on the grounds? said William. What can he do? said Martin. There's no man round here who'd ever try and kill that thing. No, you'd have to let a demon like that be. To try and kill the eye-catcher would just make matters worse. Anyone knows that. You're too young to understand. No, I'm not, said William. You look rather scared, said Martin, if I'm being honest. I'm not, said William. Well, maybe a tiny bit. Martin smiled and said, you'll be scared when the eye-catcher comes to get you. It's not going to come, said William. I don't believe you. It, it, it's not, is it? I don't know, said Martin, shaking his head. I hope not. William looked away towards the tower in panic. Why would it come to get me? William asked. What have I done? Martin shrugged. Who knows how these things work, Master William, said Martin. Why hasn't it come for you? said William. That was a good point, Martin thought for a moment. Because the eye-catcher comes for people who say they don't believe in it, said Martin. I believe you, see. I'm not supposed to talk about it, that's one of the rules. I'm taking a risk telling you, Master William. You need to believe too, then you might be safe. Might, said William. Probably, said Martin, if you believe. I do, said William, I do believe. Martin smiled. You can't say you believe, you know. The eye-catcher knows if you're lying, he said. I'm not lying, said William. Good, that's all right then, if you're sure. Martin knew that William was not entirely sure. How could he be? William wasn't stupid. He would always have some doubt, and that would make William nervous. Martin enjoyed watching William being tormented by this over the next few days. William found it hard to sleep and cried out in the night, getting a, a stern telling off from his father. William almost mentioned the eye-catcher, but remembered Martin's warning and managed to stop himself. The very fact that he and Martin had talked about it at all was dangerous and made William worry even more. Martin saw the silly boy keep looking over his shoulder towards the tower. Even though he was supposed to be trying to avoid seeing the eye-catcher, Martin found it hard to keep a straight face. Then one day, Martin was wandering aimlessly by the lake and saw William sitting at the base of a tree. His knees were pulled up to his chin and his hands covered his eyes. What are you doing, Master William? said Martin, looking past the trees for, towards the tower. I'm surprised to find you so close to you-know-what. I wanted to sail my boat, said William. Martin saw William's little yacht bobbing about on the lake. 
You got scared, said Martin. William nodded. Suddenly, Martin had stopped enjoying this prank. He was also growing concerned that William was going to forget about the secret nature of the eye-catcher and tell his father. Look here, Master William, said Martin. Here's the thing. There is no eye-catcher, really. Not in the way I told you. It's, it's just an old tower and nothing else. All the other stuff was some old story my uncle used to tell me. William shook his head, but did not move his hands. You're trying to fool me, he said. I know you are. You're trying to trick me into not believing, and then the eye-catcher will come for me. There is no eye-catcher, Martin said again. I promise. Doesn't count if you see him a bit, does it? said William. What? said Martin. See what? The eye-catcher, silly, said William. I don't think he saw me, so I don't think it counts. There is no eye-catcher, shouted Martin. Don't say that, said William, or you'll think you don't believe. Martin breathed a great sigh of frustration. Ugh! He heard an echo of his sigh and realised there was something behind him. Martin turned to find himself face to face with a shadowy figure. He just had time to notice the clawed hand and the long fingernails before they flew towards his face. Martin's screams brought the servants running, with Sir Andrew following behind. They found Martin flailing around on the ground. Even with all this commotion, William would not take his hands away from his face until they were inside. He could offer no clue as to what had happened to Martin. Sir Andrew was persuaded that it must have been some terrible accent, accident sorry, where Martin had run into the branches of a tree, something the terrified William must have witnessed. Martin was drugged and taken to a hospital. His ravaged eyes were bandaged, but Martin never recovered. William wanted to tell his father what had actually happened by the lake, but he decided against it. He did not want to attract the attention of the eye-catcher. Seven Ghosts by Chris Priestley Ghost 4, Part 2 Jake and all the other children looked towards the tower in the woods where Martin had been found. Jake squinted, peering out. What was that moving about among the trees? It was a boy. There was something wrong with his face. But then he was gone, disappearing behind a shrub. The other children hadn't seemed to notice a thing, and Jake followed them as they walked behind Mrs Fox down a corridor. Jake saw the floor was puddled with water. The cleaner couldn't have mopped up properly. Mrs Fox went into a nearby room with a grand piano in the centre of it. This is the music room here at Grimstone Hall, as you may have guessed, Mrs Fox told them. One of the children near the piano accidentally pressed one of the keys. It made a plink noise and everyone giggled. Let me tell you about our fifth ghost, Mrs Fox continued. The Grimstone Hall Trust was very pleased when they managed to track down the piano that had been in this room in the 1890s. But as soon as it arrived, strange things began to happen. The piano tuner said that the piano started to play itself as he left the room. Then there were reports of sightings of a girl sitting at the piano.